I'm not going to focus on the miracle itself so much today. Uh, if you want to go back onto our website and go on that sermon page and just put in John 6, uh, then you will find uh, the sermons uh, on that miracle that I did years ago when we were in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a couple that tie in with that as well, including the, from the text that we read already this morning at the tail end of John 6, uh, Jesus' response. So, uh, That being said, let's go to Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were, com- were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognizing them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, them, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. And God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, uh, we come uh, much like them. We have a shepherd, but we're also hungry, and we need to be fed. And so we ask that Jesus would teach us this morning, uh, that Jesus would refresh us, that Jesus would encourage us, that Jesus would have compassion upon us uh, for the conditions that we find ourselves in. And we ask this in his name. Amen. One of the interesting things about 1 Kings chapter 1 is that there's a crisis. And the, the crisis is prompted by the fact that David, who is the king, uh, the most popular king, and uh, arguably the greatest merely human king that Israel had, was basically on his deathbed. Uh, he couldn't leave his bed. He was old, he was weak, he was cold. And there was nothing that he could do about it. In a sense, you have a nation that's waiting for their king to die. But one of his sons was not content to wait for his father to die. 
He had perhaps received bad counsel from men like Joab, uh, who had, had come and had encouraged him to take the throne to himself. And so he had arranged to go to one of the high places to offer the sacrifices and uh, for the, the prophet to come and pour oil on his head and anoint him king and then come into the city and there declare his greatness, that he now was king, not his father. But that was not the plan that David had. Uh, David had already planned for the son of his favorite wife, Bathsheba, his son Solomon, to be king. What's a king going to do when he's bedridden? Well, he gives his son Solomon wisdom. And he gathers uh, to him uh, the men that he needs to pull off this plan. And he says to take my own donkey. Ride on it, the royal donkey, to the declaration that you are now king. Uh, David makes Solomon his vice regent until that time uh, that Solomon, well, David dies and Solomon becomes king. But there was a question of who was the real king of Israel. We sort of have a similar question when we get to places like this in the middle of Mark. Who is the real king? Last week, we, we, last two weeks, we've talked about Herod, who, who claimed himself to be the king of the Jews. But who is the king of the Jews? <clears throat> that's where we come in. And as we uh, think of what's going on here, uh, we see uh, the first question that comes to my mind anyway is, is what happens when the disciples return to Jesus? Oh yeah, remember that? Remember how Jesus had sent them away, he had authorized them, he had given them power and authority, and had sent them out to, to continue his, or expand his mission? And then we had all of this stuff with Herod. First beginning with, well, who is this Jesus? And then we have the reality of how John the Baptist died. And now the disciples come back. We've shifted. Mark has shifted from Herod's decadent and deadly birthday feast to the disciples' return. <clears throat> and when they return, it, it, Mark lets us know that they told him all that they had done and taught. And so that must have been kind of a great period of time. Jesus and the twelve sitting there, and he's hearing, uh, you know, basically six stories of, of how they went out amongst these villages and towns throughout Galilee and ministered in the name of Jesus. And he probably heard about the, the miracles that they performed and the people that they healed and the, the many that came to repentance and faith. It was a great debrief period of time about how they fulfilled the mission that Jesus sent them on. What's interesting to me is that there is no assessment given of how they did. Uh, there's no critique by Jesus recorded here, uh, kind of saying, hey, you got that right, but you know, this part of it, we need maybe to do, or do a little bit of work. There's no mention of that. But there is mention of something else. Come away with to a desolate place, and rest. Uh, Jesus engages his weary disciples. And he says, let's go someplace quiet. 
Let's go someplace peaceful and let's get you rest. It's amazing to me what Jesus does. Ministry is exhausting. And uh, those of you who don't do ministry, work is exhausting too. Jesus cares. Jesus knows that we need rest. Uh, We we see this uh, with the reality of the Sabbath and, and how it's explained in the law. It reveals our need for rest. Six days you shall labor. Now, there is a command to work. Okay. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. There's a rhythm of life that is to be experienced. The, the working and the resting. The working and the resting. No, I'm not about to argue for a six-day work week. Don't worry about that, folks. Because, you know, they basically mostly worked at home in their agrarian society. And so uh, you might work four or five days a week, but there's stuff to do at home uh, that occupy the other amount of time. But what I want to stress is rest is necessary for all of us. We're all finite beings. We do not have unlimited strength, and we need time to rest and to be restored. And Jesus is inviting these men who are weary from ministry to come to a quiet place to be restored. This week is, was the uh, week of the Gospel Coalition lunch. <clears throat> and uh, it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, there's a bunch of pastors now. Uh, you know, there's like 20 of us, 25 of us who are, who are meeting... <laughs> <laughs> having lunch and talking about issues of ministry. And the issue that we talked about this week uh, was preaching. And we heard from a, a, a brand new guy in ministry and a guy who's been there about 10, 15 years. And then uh, Phil Cruz, who's been uh, doing this for over 20 years. <coughs> and one of the things that was said, and a lot of guys went, was just how tired they are when they're done preaching. That they feel spent physically emotionally, spiritually. And these 12 disciples had been doing that for, uh, we're not sure how long a period of time. But Jesus recognized, Jesus affirmed, and Jesus provided for their need to rest. Jesus wasn't like the Egyptian slave masters, demanding bricks without straw. Jesus sees, Jesus cares, Jesus provides. Jesus wasn't like Herod. Jesus wasn't like Caesar, both of whom rested because of the labor of the ordinary people, not their own labor. They exploited the people who were beneath them. Jesus isn't like Herod, who offered rest to the rich and the powerful and not the ordinary guy. Jesus isn't like Adonijah, who couldn't wait for his father to die to rule over people. Jesus is here providing rest to weary people. This all cuts us back to how we view Jesus. Do we view him as a cruel taskmaster? In other words, are we believing the lie of the serpent in the the Garden of Eden? 
Or do we see Jesus as God for us? As Jesus who, who recognizes our frailty, who recognizes our needs, and he comes and he provides. Which view of Jesus do you have? Because those are competing views of Jesus in your mind and in your heart. You don't entrust yourself to the taskmaster. You run from the taskmaster. But when God is for you, you draw near to him. And so Jesus, by, by the law that he gives and in terms of the seventh day you shall rest, by the example that he gives here in, in providing rest to his disciples, reveals that he is kind-hearted. He's not soft, but he is kind-hearted. He's not all work or all leisure. He invites us into the rhythm of life. But here's words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has authority. Jesus exercises authority. That's the whole idea of the yoke that is there. Uh, Jesus is calling them to a particular kind of life. And yet, Jesus says that this life is one of life, not one of impending death, not one of, of, of hardship and burden, but one uh, that ultimately leads to rest and satisfaction. One, because he is gentle and lowly in heart. He is so unlike the cruel, self-motivated, self-interested dictators of their day. Do you believe Jesus when he says this? Do you re receive the rest that Jesus offers to those who are engaged in mission? Do you believe Jesus... Do you engage in mission, or are you seeking inordinate rest? Meaning, you want to block out the six days that you labor and just focus on the rest. Or are you the person who can't rest and just works, 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 and it's hard for you to believe that Jesus says, rest. There's both, both kinds of people in this room today. And both need to believe that Jesus says, you are made for both. You are made for a, a significant labor. You are made for refreshing rest, restorative rest. And so Jesus offers rest to those weary from service to answer our first question. Second question arises to my mind. Maybe it arises to yours. How does Jesus respond to the persistent crowds? Uh, we see that that was the whole reason that these disciples, well, not the whole reason, but another reason for the disciples needed rest. Even as they're debriefing Jesus, uh, the, the crowds keep coming in and, and they can't even eat. It's so hectic and crazy as they're trying to, to share with Jesus uh, what has gone on in their mission. 
And so uh, Jesus suggests that they go to the solitary place, and they don't just walk and so everyone follows them. Uh, they go by boat, thinking, perhaps, that the people won't follow them. Unfortunately, we find that people did follow them. They recognized them from the shore, perhaps, and said, hey, look, this is where they're going. And they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Meaning, Jesus couldn't escape the crowds. He wants to be alone with his twelve. He wants to have some special time with the twelve. And yet here are the crowds. He gets, they get off the boat and there's the crowd. How do you respond to your foiled plans? I've, I've adapted a, a, a Jewish proverb. Steve plans. God laughs. Because <laughs> it seems that no matter what I plan, it never works out. And you'd figure after 50-something years of this, I'd finally learn to be okay with it. No. So there's a little addendum to this. There's a footnote to this. Uh, God laughs, Steve rages. Because I'm a sinner. I want to be in control. I want my technology to work. Or whatever it is. And perhaps that's a lot like you. That the expectations that you have, when they get crushed or sidestepped, your response is either despair or the clenched fist towards God. What does Jesus do? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the bigger picture of what's going on. It's not just about, you guys are, you know, he could have been, hey, I want to be with these 12 guys. I haven't seen them for a while. I want to spend time with them. They need to spend time with me. Can you just go away? No, he, he, he says, well, he didn't say anything yet, but he had compassion on them. He saw that, that they had spiritual needs. They had relational needs. Uh, they had physical needs uh, that only Jesus can address. And so he has compassion. He's moved internally to do something about this. Why did I talk about kings earlier? Well, because kings are often called shepherds in the Old Testament. Places like Ezekiel 34. And, and so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all of the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over every hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to seek uh, or to search or seek for them. And so Jesus sees these people, and he recognizes uh, that they are scattered. They are vulnerable. They are in danger. 
because they had a selfish king who thought only of his feasts. They lived under Caesar's thumb. And they also had to deal with the Sanhedrin, the ones who were supposed to be looking out for them, who were supposed to be teaching them the Word of God, and all they care about is maintaining political power. Herod and Caesar and the Sanhedrin had left these masses of people that he encounters in Galilee to their own foolish devices. They didn't realize how needy they were. And yet, we see it manifested in the fact that wherever Jesus shows up, there they are. They want something. They need something. Brothers and sisters, you are needier than you realize. You are needier than you want to admit. We all struggle with a lack of self-awareness. Those of you who have some self-awareness, good. But you know what? It's not very deep. You are profoundly, all of us, are profoundly needy. And Jesus doesn't come and point the finger and say, stop being needy. Jesus has compassion because he sees us as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was moved by their lack of a shepherd. Jesus was moved by their great spiritual need. We often think, when, when we are aware of our neediness, when we are aware of, of how the difficulty of life and, and, and whether it's an illness or a, a child of ours that has lost his way on the path, and, you know, gone off the, off the path, um, whether it's you don't have a job that you like, you, actually you hate your job, or you don't have a job. Whatever those things may be, whatever the, wherever the affliction presses in deep, you, you, you used to be in control of your life, you thought, and you were free to go wherever you wanted. And now you're feeling restricted because of health concerns and age and everything else. And we're tempted to think that Jesus doesn't care. We're tempted to think that Jesus doesn't see. But, as I said earlier, these are lies. And once again, his ministry, his example, shows that he cares. What does it say he did? He began to teach them many things. Proper teaching is a part of good shepherding. He sees these people who are clueless, and he begins to instruct them. He begins to instruct them about who God is. He begins to instruct them about what God does. He begins to instruct them about the real kingdom that's coming and as opposed to the fake kingdoms that they see all around them. He instructs them. And we all need such shepherding from Jesus. But there's something here. True compassion moves a person toward action. 
Jesus was not a casual observer. Uh, nor is Jesus someone who, who you know, sheds a tear because of the, so, the sad story that he sees on TV, but does nothing. Jesus came. Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus taught. And ultimately, of course, Jesus would die upon the cross bearing the sins of his people. Jesus would remain under the power of death for days. And then Jesus would rise to conquer death and sin. And so uh, we see that in Jesus, compassion produces action. An action that is appropriate for the reason for the compassion. Jesus came. And so Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. Well, how does Jesus respond to the disciples' demand? That's our third question for today. Uh, Because Jesus is doing all this great ministry, (coughs) and he's teaching them many things, But he teaches the people for so long that evening is beginning to approach. The people continue to be engaged. They prefer to listen. They're feasting, in a sense. They're finding rest, in a sense. And the disciples, we're not sure of all of their motivations, but they say to to Jesus, you know, he's in the middle of teaching, hey, Jesus. Send them away so that they may buy themselves something to eat. The disciples are concerned. The disciples have a form of compassion uh, for these people because they can see what's looming is they're all going to be hungry and they need food to eat and there's no food out here in the solitary place. Um, Now, if you keep in mind that there are 5,000 men and therefore we don't know how many thousand women and thousands of children are also in there, and the average city in Galilee at that point was about 3,000 people. Imagine a community tripling in size overnight when you know you don't have freezers or anything like that. There's there's no refrigerators full of food that you can go to, and all of a sudden these people descend. It, it makes no sense. And yet the disciples are send them away so they can buy themselves something to eat. Jesus then says, basically, you feed them. Emphasis on you. The way it's constructed. Now, this would seem to place a heavy yoke on them, would it not? Put yourself in their shoes for a second. Jesus, how am I going to feed 10,000 people. Okay, there's 12 of us. Big deal. (laughs) It doesn't make it a whole lot better. Jesus had, of course, given them power and authority, right? 
They, apparently they had forgotten all of that. One of the interesting things, when we look back at Exodus 16, God fed them every day, manna from heaven. And what does it say? That he might test their hearts. You tend to forget about that part of it. And, of course, it did test their hearts. Because, you know, some of them were greedy and, and you know, tried to accumulate more than they could uh, <coughs> eat in one day. They, they were thinking that they could store it, and they, it couldn't. It went bad. And then, you know, then they got sick of it. And they started complaining about God's provision. Okay. This is how needy and sinful we are, right? This is a test. Upon to see the hearts of, of these disciples, you feed them. And they didn't respond very well. We often find Jesus' commands to be unbearable. We can find them to be difficult to obey. And that's, I think, in part because often we miss the real point. The point is not what we do, but the point ultimately is what Jesus will do. He's wanting them to cry out, help us, Jesus. He's wanting us to cry out, help me, Jesus. One of Augustine's famous prayers was, Give what thou commandest. He recognized his inability to obey the commands of God and asked him to give him the grace he needed to do it. And that's where we all are. Some of you are in very difficult places right now. I didn't talk with Linda, but I'll pick on Linda. Can I pick on you for a second? You're good. Oh, okay. Maybe you've noticed on Facebook, but there's a renovation project that's taking place that has made their kitchen inoperable. Some people can live with that tension really easily. I'm not one of those people. You know? When we remodeled this, it was hard on me. It was hard on some of you. I remember. I was. I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but you know, coming in and we had the sheets of plastic, <laughs> you know, behind us and all this stuff. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that we met in our sanctuary and we didn't get a, a, a secondary place. And yet, you know, that that period of time was difficult for a lot of us because of the um, unfixedness of everything. And yet, God was gracious, and we were able to do it. God is gracious and gives us empowering grace to deal with the commandments that we find insurmountable, unattainable, overwhelming. Again, the point is not what we do. The point is what Jesus will do. And they scrounge up five loaves and two fish. And with those five loaves and two fish, Jesus feeds everybody. 
Jesus continues to have compassion on the crowds who didn't work that way that day in order to come and listen to Jesus, and he gives them their daily bread. Jesus is the new and greater Moses who's gathering God's people in the wilderness, just as we see in Exodus 16, and he's gathering them to refresh them and to instruct them and to form this new people of God. Jesus is fulfilling the prayer, the petition that he taught his people. Give us this day our daily bread, and Jesus gives them their daily bread. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) He gives them enough to eat that day. Not enough to feed them for a week, but that day. And so we, we see that he provides daily bread. He doesn't provide a trust fund of grace as much as we would like that. Imagine never having to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And yet that's what we all want to do. We all wish we never had to pray that. But what does the Bible say? Deuteronomy 8. You will eat, you will be satisfied, and you will forget me. And your hearts will become proud. And what happened? Well, we see when we get to the prophets, particularly Hosea, they ate, they were proud, and they forgot God. And so it was daily bread. (coughs) We don't want daily grace. We don't want morning mercies. We want, to, we want a dump truck load of them. Um, because as sinners, we hate to ask. What we see here as well is that Jesus is greater than Elisha, one of the great prophets of Israel, who fed 100 prophets with 20 loaves of bread. That was an astounding miracle. Jesus, his miracle was greater. 10, 15, possibly 1,000 people fed five loaves, two fish. Jesus is the antithesis of Herod, who fed the rich at the expense of the poor in a palace. Jesus here is feeding the poor in the wilderness out of his great beneficence. Jesus serves his people more than they serve him. So unlike Herod, so unlike Caesar. We see reflections of this in 1 Corinthians 10 when it talks about how they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink, from they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Even in the days of Moses, it was Jesus who was satisfying and sustaining the people of God. It was Jesus who was the provision of God. And he still is. It hasn't changed. 
So you might think you need money, and you do, but really you need Jesus. Uh, you might think um, you need a friend, and you might, you do, but you really need Jesus, the ultimate friend. Uh, you might think you need a place to live, but you really need Jesus, the refuge for sinners. Mark wants us, well, he wants them, the original audience who lives in Rome, and by extension us, who live here in Tucson, Arizona, to see the great contrast between Caesar and Herod and the real king with the eternal kingdom that man cannot shake, man cannot destroy, man cannot pull down. The true kingdom, the true king. And Jesus, that king, gives of himself out of compassion. So if we kind of take these three threads, if we take Jesus offers rest to those who are weary from service, that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd, that Jesus gives of himself out of compassion. If we take those three threads, we come up with the, with the idea that Jesus is a compassionate king who provides for his people. Well, I'll remind you that King David had a dynastic plan. Solomon was supposed to reign after him, but Adonijah his older son, jumped the gun. David, though on his deathbed, had to act quickly to put his official stamp on Solomon, who would begin his reign without deposing his father. Solomon would turn out to be a far greater king than self-serving and self-willed Adonijah ever could have been, however imperfect he was. We see Jesus here. In Mark 6, Jesus is not seeking an earthly throne. He's not seeking to depose Herod, so to speak, or Caesar. But Jesus has a heavenly throne that is above every other throne. He, he, he rules not with an iron-fisted will, but rather he reveals that he is a compassionate shepherd. He fed his people spiritually and physically. He offers rest to the weary instead of demanding more and more from you like most politicians do. Jesus is worthy of your trust, of entrusting yourself into his care because he's a compassionate shepherd. Let's pray. Father, uh, we have met no one like Jesus. And as a result, sometimes it's hard to believe that He is who He says He is, who the Scriptures say He is. Uh, our doubts and our fears will arise. We will wonder, is that just Him back then? But help us to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That He indeed is still the compassionate shepherd and that we are sheep that need Him. And He is not casting His sheep out, but gathering them. 
And so help us, Father, to own up to our neediness. To own up to our frailty, our imperfections, our weakness. Because it is only then that Jesus fills us with his own fullness so that we have his strength, we have his wisdom, we have his holiness. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.